Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you, kind of, <laughs> through the cameras, through the live stream. You know, thinking of Jesus soon after he started his ministry, and he returned to his hometown of Nazareth, and it was the day of worship, Saturday. So he went to the synagogue, which is where he went the whole time that he was growing up. So he knew these people, and they knew him. And they must have been hearing about his ministry so far. So when he came into worship, they wanted him to read the scripture. So they handed him the scroll of Isaiah. It wasn't a book. It looked like this. Probably not that old and tattered. But it was a scroll. And I'm just wondering how large that scroll might have been. Because Isaiah is actually a huge book. And there are so many things. He got to choose where he was going to read. And he could have read from any part of this book. You can go ahead and take that picture off if you want. But they, they didn't tell him what to read, and so he got to choose. And he could have chosen calling out the people's unfaithfulness. The leaders were corrupt and greedy. There was blood on their hands. The way they were treating the poor and the oppressed. He could have read the sections that describe the consequences of their sin, how they lost everything, because this is over a span of 300 years that this book was written. So they lost their city, Jerusalem was destroyed, and the temple, and their monarchy, and their nation. He could have called out the comfort chapter that you just heard Pastor Kurt read. And yet out of all the things that he could have read, he chose to read this good news from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then after saying those words, he sat down and everybody was staring at him. And while they were looking at him, he said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It was a stunning moment. And stunning to me is the fact that as he read out of Isaiah, he really could have said that about the whole scroll, the whole book, because Jesus fulfilled it all. He took the judgment for the failures of the people, he ushered in God's promises for a new day, a new creation. He, what the people could not be, who they were supposed to be and do what they were supposed to do, he actually achieved that. The very thing that they could not achieve, which, which was to live their lives glorifying God. So with that background, Let's turn to Isaiah 2, and I invite you to pause with me for prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that we are in your hands, and we pray now as we gather in your name that your spirit would be moving in us and among us so that we hear your word, so that we hear Jesus speaking to us. Amen. First 17 verses of Isaiah 2, listen to God's word to you. 
the word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord, for you have forsaken the ways of your people, O house of Jacob. Indeed, they are full of diviners from the east and of soothsayers like the Philistines, and they clasp hands with foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. And so people are humbled, and everyone is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the glory of his majesty. The haughty eyes of people shall be brought low, and the pride of everyone shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up and high, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the high mountains and against all the lofty hills, against every high tower and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish and against all the beautiful craft. The haughtiness of people shall be humbled, and the pride of everyone shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. This is the gift of God's word. Thanks be to God. You know, there are two parts, really, to Isaiah. There is the judgment part and the promise part. And you could hear both of those in this passage that I just read. There's the first section, which is the promise part. And it's this beautiful vision of a world centered around God where there is no more war, no more learning about war. And then the second part is the judgment part for God's people and their forsaking the Lord and for their idolatry. And there's one common denominator that you could hear in our passage in both of these sections, the judgment section and the promise section, and that is this, that the Lord alone is exalted. The Lord alone is exalted. And when the Lord alone is exalted, then all other of our attachments are exposed for what they are, which are idols. And when the Lord alone is exalted, then the whole world is drawn to that wisdom and instruction and people live together in peace. When the Lord alone is exalted, nothing else is lifted up higher 
in our lives than God. Nothing. And so you heard at the end of this passage, the latter part, the judgment part, you know, there's this list, and it's of many treasured things in their world, and they will be brought down. These beautiful, tall things, like the cedars of Lebanon, the oaks of Bashan, the high mountains and lofty hills, the high towers and fortified walls, the beautiful ships of Tarshish, they will all be brought down. Why? Because they are lifted up higher than God. And so Isaiah writes, they will be humbled. The haughtiness of people shall be humbled, and the pride of everyone shall be brought low, <clears throat> and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. I don't know if you've ever heard the shocking words out of Jesus' mouth that are given to us in Luke 14, where he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What? Reading that passage is like, what? What is he saying? And yet, in this jarring way, I think he's saying the same thing. That these treasured things in our lives must serve the most treasured thing in our lives if we're going to get things right. The Lord alone will be exalted on that day, and that is where Jesus is taking his followers. One of the most influential teachers in all of church history is from the 16th century, St. Ignatius of Loyola. And he wrote a book, The Spiritual Exercises, a classic which is still used a lot. And in this uh, book and in the work that he does, he begins with the question, why are we here? Why were we placed here on this earth? And then he gives the answer. We were placed here to praise, reverence, and serve God our Lord. It might remind you of the question that you heard in the same, written at the same time in history from the Westminster Catechism. What is the chief end of man? And the answer comes back, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so St. Ignatius reasons this way. If that is why we are here, then every other thing in creation must serve that end. I want to read to you what he writes. The other things on the face of the earth are created for man to help him in attaining the end for which he is created. Hence, man is to make use of them insofar as they help him in the attainment of his end. And he must rid himself of them in as far as they prove a hindrance to him. Therefore, we must make ourselves indifferent to all created things as far as we are allowed free choice and are not under any prohibition. Consequently, as far as we are concerned, we should not prefer health to sickness, riches to poverty, honor to dishonor, a long life to a short life, and the same holds for all other things. Our one desire and choice should be what is more conducive to the end for which we are created. Wow. That's, that's hard. 
we should not prefer health to sickness, riches to poverty, honor to dishonor, a long life to a short life, only those things that are conducive to that one end for which we were created. There is a term for this, it's called holy indifference in Ignatian teaching. And it's at the very center of his teaching and the spiritual exercises. I'm a part of a prayer group and we meet once a month and we've been meeting for many, many years. And one of the members of that group this last week was sharing how she's in a series right now on the Ignatian uh, spiritual exercises and is learning about once again and trying to practice holy indifference. And she was saying that she anticipates her future. She has cared for a husband who died of cancer. And she realized that when she thinks about being dependent upon someone else, that's really hard for her to feel a sense of holy indifference about that. It's, it's hard. And let's be honest, only Jesus did this. <laughs> only Jesus did this. Only Jesus completely was indifferent to everything else except what helped him attain the end for which God sent him. And that's why he could fulfill all of Isaiah, the judgment part and the promise part. It's the only reason he was able to take the judgment that was coming to God's people. And did you hear that line in the passage where it said, do not forgive them? Because what they had done was unforgivable. Which is why Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because of the God forsakenness that he was taking on from God's people. And yet there on the cross, what does he do but turn that around and say, Father, forgive them. Only Jesus in his ability to practice holy indifference could bring release to all of us who are captive to sin and to pride in his resurrection. And only he could usher in the new creation of justice and peace. He could do that because literally he did not prefer health over sickness, a long life to a short life, right? Riches over poverty, honor to dishonor. The only thing that he wanted was to exalt the Lord alone. And why did he do that here? So that we could do that too. So as we read Isaiah, we long for God's correctives, because I think we do. I think we're sick of everything that is haughty and proud and lifted up. And as we long for that future day when people actually rally around truth and instruction and share that same truth and instruction and learn war no more, we lean into Jesus, who is the only one who could say, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All of it. All of Isaiah. The judgment and the promise and the comfort. You know, a little over a year ago, Margie Barkow shared a story with many of us, and this was at one of our team meetings, and it's a tender story that made a big impact on me, and I asked her if she would share it with you. So I'm gonna ask her to share that now through this video, and then I'm going to tell you a little bit about why I think this is really helpful for us with this Isaiah 2 passage. Last June, our family suffered a terrible loss. 
Our dear niece, Lori, who was only 46 years old, unexpectedly died home alone during the middle of the night. Her body was found the next day by a friend who was meeting her for lunch. Then my husband's sister, Donna, and her husband, Phil, got that terrible phone call that every parent dreads receiving. As soon as she could, Donna rushed over there, anxious to see her daughter and hold her and kiss her one last time. But when she got there, the coroner was already there and she would not let her go up. Despite pleading that she just wanted to hold her, the coroner was afraid that Donna would have a lasting memory of how Lori looked at that time. She wanted to see her then when she was in the funeral home, but the funeral director would not let her see her either for the same reason. So when the funeral was to be held one week later, Donna had not seen her daughter yet. She invited some dear friends, the pastor who had confirmed Lori to speak at the funeral and they were at her house the night before. She herself was consumed with anxiety. She didn't know how she would be at the funeral, how she would feel after seeing her daughter. She didn't know if she would be crying loudly, need to run out of the church. She was afraid what, of what people would think and she was filled with anxiety. She began weeping and could not stop, despite the loving listening and prayers of her friends who were there. Finally, her pastor friend said that when he was at a place where he could not solve a situation and did not know what to do, he had learned to say, glorify yourself, Lord, glorify yourself. That didn't help Donna much. She didn't see how God could be glorified in the death of her daughter. She wondered about it, but was still filled with anxiety and dread. All of a sudden, in the middle of those thoughts, another thought occurred to her. She would get to see her daughter the next day. The very thing she'd been wanting to do all this time she would be able to touch her and kiss her and talk to her. And suddenly she was filled with excitement about what the next day would bring. And then she wondered, how could I be having this change of thoughts and realized that God had glorified himself in this situation, that he was showing her who he really was, that he heard her and knew her and was helping her in this very personal way, in this very individual situation. She went to bed relieved, got up the next day, excited about going to church and seeing her daughter. When she got there, she walked right down the aisle to the casket, and even though Lori did not look the way she looked, she was able to stand up there and kiss her and touch her and talk to her until she was completely finished, without a concern for anyone else in the church. Afterwards, she sat down with her husband in peace, listened to the rest of the service, and then happily greeted the people who had come 
to show their concern for them. I talked to my sister-in-law again yesterday, and again she told me about it, and again cried. But also, again, she was filled with joy that God had glorified himself in this situation, and she knew how very personal was his love for her. It is that simple prayer that was just so moving to me that made such a huge difference in Margie's sister-in-law's life. It's a prayer that I'm not used to praying, but I have been praying it more often because just hearing how it changed the landscape for her, completely changed the landscape for her, so that even her enormous love and grief for her daughter could be reoriented around this deep trust in God. Jesus did that in her. Jesus did that for her. And so that very accessible, simple, heartfelt prayer, glorify yourself, Lord, I think captures the essence of this passage. It captures what Jesus did for all of us in fulfilling all of what is in Isaiah. The judgment, the promises, living out our purpose to praise and reverence and serve God, to glorify God, enjoy God forever, to prefer nothing else except that. Glorify yourself, Lord. And when the Lord alone is exalted and glorified and lifted up, then all the earth will flow to that source of truth and instruction, and then we will live together in peace. Let's pray. Oh God, this is hard to understand and hard to do, but we praise you that you have done it. In Jesus Christ, you have come. You have taken our failure. You have lived out this resurrection power so that we too can exalt you alone. Oh Lord, in baby steps, we pray that we will not be discouraged, but lean into you and trust you to bring peace in whatever place we are right now, to help us to keep our eyes on you and to exalt the Lord alone. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.